his character, uh, Chris Gardner, lands this internship at, at Dean Witter Financial. Um, and if you haven't seen this movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, um, with a Y, not an I, um, and that's part of the movie as to why it's spelled with a Y. Um, you may not know that this is just the beginning of the struggles in the real-life story of Chris Gardner's journey from being a homeless single father to being a broker at one of the largest financial institutions in San Francisco. Um, in one of the lowest points in the movie, uh, Chris and his son have to take refuge for the night in a subway train station because they've been evicted from their apartment. And Gardner's six-month internship at Dean Witter is without pay, and he's vying against 20 younger and more established candidates for just a single position. And yet, against the odds, Chris manages to look after his son, lug around these 40-pound bone density scanners to sell on the side in order to keep himself afloat and outlast the other candidates for the job. It's a great story. And we love those stories. I love those stories. I love underdog stories. I do. It's in our nature to root for the little guy. The unknown sports team or player that wins the big game. The tiny army that holds their ground against overwhelming odds. The, uh, the, the, the people that come from nowhere. We marvel at real life stories like Chris's or like J.K. Rowling, who's a homeless writer and single mother who's living out of her car and, and writing manuscripts at coffee shops and is now the author of the best-selling children's series ever, the Harry Potter series. Do you ever wonder why we love those stories so much, though? What is it about them that really, that really draws us in, that really excites us and ignites us when we hear about those stories? What is it about the outcast that succeeds that speaks so much to us? I think sometimes this underdog idea gets a little twisted around in our heads. In a flurry of self-motivation talk or, or humanistic thought in our culture, See, you can do anything. If you just have enough determination and enough grit and enough drive, you are the master of your destiny. You too can rise above the... I don't know if that's it, though. I don't know if that's it. I mean, see, there are all kinds of people who drive and determination and grit that, that try their hardest and fail. Or they try their hardest and they live normal lives. You know, It takes a lot of grit and drive and determination just to live normally, doesn't it? Okay, and we don't hear their stories being paraded and lauded in movies or magazines or history books. It can't just be the determination or the drive of the individual. It's got to be some kind of wild card factor. This against all odds motif. That's what really draws us in. A true underdog has no credibility. No reason to even have a chance at succeeding. And the miraculous outcome leaves people scratching their heads. And it should, because true underdog stories have an element of the miraculous in them. And they point us to the idea that there is something greater outside of our grit and our determination or our best effort or our character. There's something else that has to be at work in the outcast to bring them to the center, to make the lost cause succeed, to take the shepherd boy and turn him into a king. What does it take in order to make such an unlikely king king. Last week when we left the story, Saul has abandoned God's plan for his life in order to enslave himself to the image of what the culture calls a successful king. 
And so God, in turn, begins to abandon Saul. Our re- in our reading this morning, shows God moving in a similar yet truly different direction as he directs Samuel to select and anoint the next king of Israel. And once again, we go to a small town, and we find a small family in the margins of one of the tribes of Israel. This time, it's the house of Jesse, Ruth and Boaz's grandson, in the southern town of Bethlehem. Samuel visits the town under pretense of offering a sacrifice, but the elders of the town are still afraid, and there's a really good reason that they're still afraid. Okay, Samuel is a kingmaker and a kingbreaker, and he has just publicly removed his support for Saul. You cannot criticize a guy in front of his army and have people not wonder why you're going to the other end of the kingdom in order to offer a sacrifice. Okay? And so even though he is offering a sacrifice, everybody kind of knows what he's up to, and they're a little afraid. And they wonder, what's the outcome of this going to be? So Jesse's family comes in, and it's asked to t- he's asked to take a place of honor at the sacrifice, and you can just kind of feel the tension in the air. Samuel is going to pass the anointing of the Lord onto one of Jesse's sons. Everybody just knows it. And everybody just knows who it's going to be, too. Eliab, he's the obvious choice. He is the biggest. He is the strongest. He has the most commanding presence. He looks the best. He's got, he's got everything that would make him a good candidate to replace Saul. Even Samuel gets drawn into this. He looks at him and goes, surely this is the one. And there's a lot of irony there, right? Because God's already told Samuel, I am going a different direction. And yet even when God tells us, I am going a different direction, we tend to still go, well, yeah, but obviously it would be like this, right, God? God goes, I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't speak loud enough. I'm going a different direction. And so one by one, the sons are paraded in front of Samuel. And every single time, God is going, no, 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 no. Everybody else is looking for the outward bearing and qualities of a potential king. God is mining for character. Yahweh is seeking this invisible X factor of the one who will be the embodiment of his sovereignty and his mercy in Israel. Something embedded deep, deep down in the heart that is visible only to its creator. And as each one is passed over, confusion begins to grow in both Samuel and everyone present until finally Samuel bluntly asks Jesse, is this everybody you've got? Because I'm telling you right now, God's anointed is not here. And Jesse kind of taken aback, and I really, really love the word that got used in our, in our because, it, because that, that really is the word, okay? It's even a little derogatory. I got the run of the litter out watching the sheep, but I mean, seriously, you're not, you're not talking about him, are you? He wasn't even important for me to bring to the festival. Certainly it's not him. Couldn't be him, could it? Could it? He is the most insignificant of the entire family. While the men of the house go out on important business, he's the one that gets left out in the field to babysit the sheep. I mean, why bring the long shot when you got the sure shot with you, right? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. But that's the thing that's drawing God's heart toward this young shepherd boy and his heart in the first place. He has lived most of his life to this point on the outside. He is the one that gets chosen 
to be left. And it's what he does with that. He chooses to spend his time on the outside with his creator. As he's been left out in the field in his life, David has lived out his forgotten status by remembering and taking solace in his God. And this is the thing that God's looking for. He is looking for a person with no credentials, no social claim to the kingship, no way that anybody could say merit or ability or anything could have resulted in the ascension to the office of God's representative. The only thing that qualifies David is that his heart is being tuned with God's heart. That is the only thing that qualifies him. It's the heart of the underdog, and God has always been a sucker for the underdog. That's why he chose Israel in the first place. Remember? That is why he is relentlessly pursuing this helpless, hapless humanity with his steadfast love. He wants to see those on the outside brought into his presence. That's the way it's been from the very beginning. As soon as we were leaving his presence, God was working on ways to bring us back in. It's always been what he's been about. And so he sees that embodied in David. And you can imagine the ruckus that ensues. The whispers and the frustration among the brothers in, and the entire town as the runt gets brought in from the field, still in his work clothes, the smell of sheep and sweat clinging to him as he is thrust before the prophet. And Samuel knows, as surely as he's ever known God's voice, this, this is the one. This is the one. And the scented oil pours from the ram horn over the dust-covered curls of the boy's hair, covering up the smell of the livestock with the aroma of the Lord's favor. God qualifies David as the heir to the kingship of Israel with an even greater anointing. With the oil comes the power of the Spirit of God. And what I think is really interesting is that in the narrative, as soon as the Spirit of God anoints David, it leaves Saul. And the rest of the story is just particulars at that point. And the outcome really isn't in question as far as the narrator is concerned. God's anointed Messiah, for that's what Messiah means. The anointed representative of Yahweh chosen to lead his people. The anointed will rise, and it makes no difference if somebody else is currently occupying the throne or not. David is a very unlikely king, but from this point on, his ascension to the throne is unquestionable. Not because of him but because of the power of the Spirit of the Lord working through him. And so we see the story move, but what specifically about David's heart makes it in tune with God? That's, that's the real question for us to start asking. What is it specifically about David's heart that makes it a heart that is chasing after God or a heart that is walking in step with God? As we're introduced to David... There are three unlikely character qualities that are part of his upbringing and his attitude. And they are the foundation that God is going to start building on. The first is that David has the heart of a shepherd. And while that job is not glamorous, David would have to have been fairly good at it to have been left alone with his family's wealth when they went into town to see Samuel. You also got to be pretty committed and compassionate as well as diligent and responsible when the wealth of your family is ornery and stinky and nearsighted and has a tendency to wander away at a moment's notice. Just think about that for a second. They're very, very valuable. They are also very, very difficult to work with. They're kind of like people. God's looking for that. 
You know, he wants somebody that wants to go after this when there's no glamour, when you're out in the field all by yourself just watching the sheep. Because if you can, if you can have that kind of compassion and perseverance when there's no glamour in the job, well, then when I give you a job that has some glamour to it, you're not going to get sucked in by the glamour because you already know why I'm doing this for you, David. Display those qualities in a forgotten job with no glory attached. The chances are you're going to do the same job when the stakes are raised as well. I've often heard it said that wealth and power and prestige, all they are is personality magnifiers. You got somebody with no money and no influence and they're a jerk, guess what's going to happen when you give them money and influence? They're going to be a bigger jerk. You got somebody who is compassionate and kind and full of character qualities and they got no money or power or influence, what's going to happen when you give them those things? In general, it is just going to expand that. You got somebody who's always afraid and always a worry wart and you give them more stuff, guess what? They're going to be a bigger worrier. All of those things are kind of just, I mean, all those things are circulating, and it's this kind of character that God's looking for before he ever bestows any sort of glory or ascension, is that do you have a heart of a shepherd, David? Are you willing, are you willing to take care of these people that I'm going to entrust to you? Even when they're flighty, even when they're strange, you know, even when they do ridiculous things to you, are you going to love them the way that I love them? We're also introduced to David the musician in the second half of chapter 16. And it's interesting how quickly this unknown shepherd boy from the other side of the kingdom makes his way into the court of the king. But it's this story being given to show us Saul's slide away from God is actually lifted up by the second attribute of David, this character of devoted worship. That time on the outside of the underdog has led David into a deep, deep devotion with God. And has given him time to work on the inner disciplines of the soul of worship. And even from a very early age, that worshipful attitude gets reflected. And it even resonates in the hearts of other people. Saul, the king and the leader of Israel, finds himself needing to be led by the true anointed one of God. Do you see that? Why? Because Saul's heart is out of harmony with God. It even says that God has allowed Saul's heart with the removal of God's spirit and it being placed on David, Saul has allowed God's heart to just be filled with disharmony and deception and trickery and all of those things and saying, you know what? If you want to spend all this time clinging with your own earthly wisdom and your own earthly power and your own ideas, clinging to this kingship, I'll let you, but it is going to absolutely destroy you. And while Saul is filled with those kind of things, David, the heart who's devo- who is truly devoted to God, not only is living in peace, but actually resonates peace to the king of Israel. Calms him down. Helps remind him what's important and who's really in charge, at least for the time being. It's not going to stay that way, but it at least starts that way. In the image of the young king that we know best, in chapter 17, the face-off against Goliath. And this is the underdog story we feel most, right? The 90-pound weakling taking on the enemy champion and emerging victorious, right? We know this one real well. But there is so much more revealed about David than just his accuracy with a sling, okay? Saul is a good warrior. It's part of what makes him the image of a king. 
but it's why Saul fights and why David fights that show the difference in their character. First off, Saul only goes out to battle when it's a sure thing from his viewpoint. Through the narrative, we see the times where Saul should step out and act, but he holds back. The odds don't look good. He's worried about the army deserting him. He's worried about what other people are going to say of him. He doesn't act like a king. And so when he should step out, he doesn't. And he holds back. And David, on the other hand, he is ready when a challenge is laid out to move forward. And the implications are this. Saul is a conqueror. He fights to get ahead. Ultimately, he fights for his own image. He fights for himself. He may be the leader of Israel, but he fights to be a good leader of Israel. David's not a conqueror. David's a defender. David fights for things other than himself. He defends the name and reputation of God. He defends the weak. He defends the land. And he defends the people that are in the promise of God. And the proof of God's favor is a result. While Saul is repeatedly badgered and outwitted by the Philistines when he goes out under his own strength, David steps in completely outmatched. And God makes the impossible possible. In David's character as a defender, we see a lot of incredible faith. But we also see some humility. Because David realizes that this isn't really about him. When the oil touched his head, he was taken up by something greater than himself. And so he lives and he moves and he acts accordingly. And both the power and the results are left where they belong. Attributed to God, not to David. And it's not all about character or natural ability for David, though. You can't make a godly king in one event. Just like the anointing in chapter 6 or the defeat of Goliath in chapter 17, they might convey the raw heart of David. God is going to lead him through a process that looks a whole lot different than the one that he led Saul through on Saul's path to the throne. Saul's ascension was pretty easy. Most people got behind him immediately, and after his first military victory, any of the naysayers that were out there, they kind of got their act together pretty quickly. Saul had a pretty easy road to the kingship. David does not have an easy road to the kingship. David's path is different. Instead of a straight shot, God moves him through numerous twists and turns through the second half of the narrative in 1 Samuel. It starts out pretty good. David becomes a trusted lieutenant. He becomes a courtier, even while Saul's paranoia is growing. He cements really loyal friendships with Jonathan, the son of Saul. And he wins the love and the right to marry Saul's daughter, Michael. You would think that he was set. But this is just the beginning. And God is going to start moving in a different direction. Because he is looking for a different outcome from David's kingship. And so he slowly, methodically starts stripping it all away. He strips away Michael. He strips away Jonathan's friendship. He strips away safety. He strips away security. He strips away all of those things. And now with David's safety and life being threatened by Saul, he has to leave everything behind at the palace. He will never see his best friend alive again after that meeting in 1 Samuel 20. He gets driven out to the edges of the kingdom with only a few trusted men, and David's path leads him to hide in caves and holes in the ground, to wander homeless, 
with Saul's ruthless pursuit on his heels. He is forced to take refuge with his enemies, the Philistines. At one point, under the pretense of being insane, which is a very interesting passage of how much he has to absolutely humble himself in order to save his life. He has to walk around pretending that he's nuts. Scratching at doorposts and letting his gold like run down into his beard. Just so he doesn't get killed by his enemies. They go, I, look at this guy. He's totally it. He may have been a warrior once, but he's a nutcase now. We're just going to leave him alone. Right? How, what would it be like that, having to reduce yourself to that, knowing that there was a promise that you were supposed to be God's anointed king? Like, what kind of faith does it take when it's totally going sideways to believe that God is still going to do what God says he's going to do? That's the character path that God asks David to walk. That is the faith building that God asks David to undergo. And along the way, he gets faced with many of the same tests from God that Saul failed. He knows he's the anointed one. Should he not just declare his candidacy? Or will he weigh on God's timing instead of his own? The king who pursues David decides to go and put himself in a very vulnerable position and relieve himself in the very cave that David is hiding in. What would you do? You know that you've been anointed, and you know that the Spirit of God has left Saul. And you also know that it's pretty justifiable if he's out manhunting you, and he just happens to drop his drawers in the cave in front of you, you're probably pretty justified in taking the opportunity to make yourself king and take the shortcut, especially when all of your men are going, do it. You're the, did, did God not say that he would hand your enemies over to you? There he is, right there, go get him. And David won't. And David won't. And it's not, it's, it's not the withdrawing, it's not the holding back that was out of fear like Saul. It's actually a very confident holding back. Because you look at the exchange, you, you look at the exchange that happens in 1 Samuel 24 after that whole encounter where David chooses not to do anything. He cuts off a corner of, of Saul's robe and hangs onto it and waits until Saul leaves, right? Which, I mean, I don't... I don't know about you, I don't know exactly how that would have played out image-wise, okay? But man, David's got to be really sneaky to be able to pull something like that off, okay? Really, really sneaky. And then he waits until Saul gets back to his army and starts calling out and saying, Hey, I noticed you stopped by my cave. Notice what happened to the hem of your robe? Why are you trying to kill me? I could have come, I mean, like literally, I could have come, I could have taken you down just now. What are you doing? I am not going to lift my hand against you. I'm your servant. Quit doing this, right? And David, just, David chooses to leave things in God's hands. Whereas Saul is so about pulling things out of God's hands and into his hands, the second that he gets afraid or the second he gets worried... When David's very life is at stake and the guy that wants to kill him is in a cave with him and the opportunity is there, David says, I'm going to wait on the Lord's timing. I'll be real, it's really, really difficult to know when the Lord's timing is, isn't it, church? It's difficult to know when to move forward and when to hold back. And the only answer I know about how to know what that timing really is is how in step are you with God's Spirit? I mean, who's really talking to you about moving forward 
or holding back on something? Is it your own fear? Is it is it your own um, your own sense of of um, elevation? Your desire to move forward? Your desire to see what's best for you? Or are you are you really really in line with the Spirit of God and listening to what He's saying about here's a chance move forward. Now's not the time. Don't move forward. All I know is that that Paul said that moving in step with the Spirit is a very very delicate process that involves a lot of listening and a lot of prayer and a lot of allowing God to be first and allowing him to remove those things that are trying to take over his authority in my life and when I do those things then I am most in step with his spirit but that's what we see God asking David to do here and he takes him through a process of years of having to learn how to do this so that once he sits on the throne He won't forget it. The question that gets answered through the rest of the narrative of 1 Samuel is, will David maintain his integrity as God's anointed while in exile, or will he give in to the base desires to avenge his wrongs, or allow fear to drive him to secure his own positions or his own supplies, rather than waiting for God to supply and provide for him? And when we look at some of the greatest psalms of worship and trust David wrote, they are not written while he's secure on the throne. They're written in the wilderness. They're written in the cave. They're written in the tension of being surrounded by his enemies with no apparent relief in sight. And it's those times that we get words like, the Lord is my fortress and my rock. And it's through this unlikely path that David takes to the throne, God begins to forge the heart of a man who is ready when the time comes to be a true representative of his heart. To be a king that redeems. And redeem David does. Before he ever is secure on the throne of Israel, David is called to redeem the Ark of the Covenant. He is called to redeem the covenant. He is called to redeem the law and the worship of God among the people and to redeem the identity and the unity of the people of God before he is ever allowed to sit on the throne. He redeems the identity of Israel first. See, now none of that happens if David turns out to be a king that's in it for his own gain. But with self stripped away and a heart in tune with God's heart, being forged by difficulty and pain as well as success, when David does rise to the throne, he's actually ready to be God's king instead of a king like everybody else. And he's ready to lead Israel as a nation that is supposed to look different from all of the other nations around it. See, that is God's ultimate goal, is for Israel to embrace their identity as a light to the nations, to be different. And in order to be different, you have to have a king who is different. God has moved the forming of his people to an all-new level through the willingness of an unlikely king. So what are you and I called to hear in this underdog story today? Surely integrity and patience and perseverance and faith All of those things have their place in the story for us. But I want to direct us to a more important challenge. In this story, there is nothing that can attribute to the rise of David to the throne of Israel except the anointing and the indwelling of God's Spirit. And I think it is this attunement to the Spirit that allows this combination of God's plan of elevation and then exile and then testing and loyalty to temper that faithfulness and that humility and that passion for doing things God's way in David's heart. 
and character until he truly is able to chase after the heart of God, to truly be called a man after God's heart. David's by no means perfect. We're going to learn that soon enough next week. Okay? Teaser. Okay? Right? We'll know that for sure. But his story is challenging and encouraging to us because the spirit that drove his heart drives our heart, church. I don't care how much of a spiritual underdog you are. The kingdom of heaven is for runts like you and me. Okay? Long shots that are used to being overlooked and left on the out of the running for holiness and greatness. But God has always been in love with the outsider. And it's when you and I truly embrace our identity as people that have no business being invited to the party that we truly experience the joy and the purpose of being caught up in God's greater story. God uses the weak to shame the strong. Why? Because the strong think that they deserve to be here. The weak already know that they don't. And so the weak are free to just rejoice in the power of God and marvel at the way that he is transforming and changing them. So who are you really? Are, are you somebody who's pretending to be Saul? Or are, you, are you somebody who's pretending to be the image of a good disciple? You know, because we think, I, I don't know, I think we get this idea that there's not that great of a difference between the appearance of holiness and the pursuit of holiness. But for God, that, that is a gap a mile and a half wide, if not more. You know, as far as the east is from the west, is the sin of trying to appear holy and walking in step with the Spirit and actually pursuing holiness. Those are two very, very different things. See, the same Spirit's available to you and I. We know that. We have that promise in Scripture. And so really the question is, do we have the discernment to look with God's eyes or not at the way holiness and the pursuit of holiness is supposed to work? To see into our heart the way that he does and to strive for his image of a disciple rather than our image of what it means to give him lip service but then just basically allow my life to be my life. God doesn't want that. He wants a heart that chases after him. And he's not going to be satisfied until he has a heart that chases after him in you and I. That's part of what it means to be an outsider brought in is that you know that you're under the good graces of the king. I think it's amazing that God doesn't even sweep David up. I think it's amazing that God doesn't even sweep David up in big plans that affect God's people then. He, he is swept up. This unlikely king is swept up into a story that will define who the savior of all people everywhere would eventually be, isn't he? False and all, David becomes a prototype for the eternal Messiah. An image that would start taking shape based on his character and be refined throughout the rest of the Old Testament as people began to expect one that could fully fulfill the idea of being the heart of God and the one anointed to lead his people for all time. It is this image of Messiah, this image of anointing, that begins to get its roots in David 
and finally finds its fulfillment in one of his descendants, who happens to be another outsider, born in the little town of Bethlehem, anointed by the pleasure of God in the midst of the smell of sheep and hay. Hmm, interesting. While the world went on unnoticing. And he would grow up in the same way. He would be tested. He would be abandoned. He would be forged as a shepherd and a worshiper and a defender. He would be an outcast king called to redeem his people with his very life and blood before he would know the comfort of the throne again. Think about that. Because it's the same path that you and I claim to follow. And our hearts and our devotion will be formed in the exact same way. Unlikely outsiders elevated and empowered by God's spirit to enact his story in our world today. As we come to the table, as we come to worship, my prayer is that you will be led to chase, like David did, the heart of Almighty God and nothing else. Let's lift the Lord high. Let's stand and worship him. Let's devote our hearts to him completely. Let's worship.